bringing the church into this building. My name's Jamie. I'm pastor elder here with Cross Point Church. If we have not met, um, excited to have you guys here. I see that no one wanted to sit in the splash zone this morning. I get it. It's like every high school classroom on the planet, apparently. Um, this morning, you, you may actually get a lot more sweat than usual flying from the stage because we are in the final uh, sermon, the final passage of the book of Hebrews together. If you've been around for any part of this series, uh, you are on the final stop of the Hebrews train. It's kind of crazy to think about uh, that going back to, I believe, September, we have officially worked our way through this entire book of the Bible, which is pretty phenomenal if you think about it. Uh, all of the things that we've covered in this theologically intense, rich book of the Bible, all that God has, has brought to bear through our study of this book. My hope is that you, you've come face to face with a number of glorious truths that, that have and will continue to work their way deep down into the, the core of your being, truths that you can preach to yourself in the coming days, weeks, months, in those moments, in struggles with sin, struggles with doubt, struggles with unbelief. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, maybe you're thinking, wow, what a terrible time to step into a church gathering, the last Sunday of a sermon series that's been going on since September. Um, you, you've come at a great time. In fact, uh, let this be an encouragement even to, to come back next week and the following week, check things out with us, um, because you're on the precipice of the beginning of the next series where we're going to dive into the book of Esther together, working our way through the months of April and May. One of the most fascinating books of the Bible, I, in my opinion, could easily be turned into a three-hour uh, major motion picture that would not for a second bore you. Fascinating story. We'll get into that in a couple of, of weeks. But for now... We're going to finish out the book of Hebrews. One of the things that I've been saying over and over again throughout this series uh, is that the book of Hebrews reveals to us the literary masterpiece that the Bible truly is. 66 books you have that, that comprise the canon of Scripture written over the course of nearly 2,000 years by roughly 40 human authors. It was written by kings, philosophers, fishermen, doctors, peasants, and scholars written in two main languages, both Greek and Hebrew, with a little infusion of Aramaic, uh, made up of songs, letters, sermons, architectural specifications, poetry, population statistics, genealogies, etc., etc., etc. And yet, this incredibly diverse book of the Bible tells uh, one, or excuse me, this incredibly diverse book, I should say, that is the Bible, tells one overarching story of redemption with Jesus as the hero that binds the entire thing together. Across the span of all of those diverse authors, all of those diverse genres over the course of 2,000 years, all of those books coming together, 66 books that make up your Old and New Testament, tell one story, and Jesus is the one capital H hero of the whole thing. That's pretty amazing. And the author of Hebrews does a phenomenal job of showing us how all of those pieces actually fit together. He shows us how the puzzle works. One beautifully interwoven story of redemption with Jesus as the one true hero. He's, he's writing, the author of Hebrews is, to a group of people who are saying, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but they're being pressured from the outside to abandon Christianity. And so, as I've said over and over again throughout this series, believing that an eye full of Jesus is actually what this battle-inflicted audience needs, he puts Jesus on full display for roughly 10 chapters. And then a shift occurs. 
the final three chapters, which is what we've called part two of this series, as we, we dove into beginning in early February, represent a shift of sorts. The, the author of Hebrews wants us to understand that all of those glorious truths that we've encountered that have saturated the first 10 chapters of this book of the Bible having to do with the, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, those truths are meant to create in us a settled confidence in God and his promises. They're meant to, to compel us, to drive us, to keep persevering, to keep trusting, to keep enduring, to, to keep running toward Jesus, to use that that image of a race that the author of Hebrews draws out a couple of times in his writing, to keep running toward Jesus with all that's within us as he waits for us at the finish line with open arms. In other words, as I've argued for weeks now, the final three chapters of the book of Hebrews are the author's way of heaping kindling onto the fire of our hearts, revealing to us who we are in Christ and what awaits us at the finish line as we persevere into the arms of Jesus. And not only that, but showing us what a persevering life actually looks like, a life of gratitude and worship informed by the gospel. So we're gonna get after that again this morning as we close out this book of the Bible. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, Starting in verse seven, we'll work our way through the remainder of this final chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the rows in front of you, underneath one of those chairs in the basket there. Uh, You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's a little bit difficult to track with, you can take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll get to work. Father, thank you for making a way that we might be declared sons and daughters of the living God for rescuing us in off the streets, giving us a home. You are our Abba because of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. I pray that we would rest in the glorious promises that are ours in Christ this morning. pray that if there's anyone in this room who comes in is not a follower of Jesus Christ, that they would be compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ to come to the foot of the cross with nothing more than their sin and the empty hands of faith to become a part of this eternal family. God, I pray that you would help us to see what a life informed by the gospel actually looks like as we dive into these final verses, very pragmatic, very practical verses in terms of what it is to live the Christian life a life informed by your gospel. And so I pray that uh, as we leave this place, that we would more and more for your glory and our joy embrace the commands, the imperatives of scripture, not because we believe that it will earn us anything with you, but because we know that Christ has earned everything for us and that as we rest in your grace, you, you do change us. You conform us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. God, would you... Move and work by the power of your spirit as we spend time in your word this morning in the coming moments. So in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. As I mentioned last week, and I even mentioned it in the prayer just now, throughout the month of February, we, we took a look at some pretty incredible promises that are ours in Christ. If you're a Christian, God is your father. You're, you're not a spiritual orphan. You've been rescued out of the dumpsters of depravity. You've been brought in off of the street and given a home and a name. God is your Abba and you are his child. And he loves you so much that he will do everything he can to make your heart happy in him. 
You've been redeemed into a covenant family, the author of Hebrews says. A family of faith meant to help you persevere into the arms of Jesus, to make it to the finish line. You're not in this thing alone, in isolation. You're surrounded by siblings, eternal siblings, who have been given the task of lifting you up in moments of weariness, discouragement, and sin, helping you to see and savor Jesus when you're not sure you can keep seeing and savoring Jesus. And he's also given you that role in the lives of others in the midst of their weariness, discouragement, and sin. The author of Hebrews says you've come to Mount Zion, a citizen of the eternal city of God, a heavenly city where everything sad will one day come untrue and we will stand and bask in the presence of God forever. God's people in God's forever place in a forever covenant with him. No more hiding, no more running, no fear of being banished from God's presence. More angels than we could possibly count in festal gathering, to use the language that the author of Hebrews uses. Singing of God's goodness, glory, and grace. You can just picture that. Thousands upon thousands of angels, myriads and myriads gathered together to sing of God's goodness, glory, and grace. We've been brought into a family spanning the generations of redemptive history, including all of the Christ-following saints who have gone before us, that we're knit together with them by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we're free to bask in the presence of God without condemnation, the author of Hebrews says, free to enjoy making much of him forever in a land of perfection and righteousness, with Jesus, the one who secured our freedom as the centerpiece of the new Jerusalem lighting up the entire city with his glory like the 4th of July. The author of Hebrews closes chapter 12 with these words. You can look back probably a page prior to the one that you're on right now and see these words. Closing out chapter 12, he says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In in light of all that's ours in Christ, he says God is worthy of both our gratitude and our worship. And he doesn't just leave us with some generalized understanding of those words, gratitude and worship. Rather, he spends much of chapter 13 showing us what a, a life of gratitude and worship informed by the gospel actually looks like. And so if you find yourself asking the question, how can I express more thanks and gratitude to God for all that he's done for me? Or how can I be a person who walks in worship. What does that look like? Chapter 13 attempts to actually answer those kinds of questions very practically. Last week, we talked about how the gospel informs our love for one another. We talked about how the gospel informs the life of hospitality, empathy, and care. We talked about how the gospel informs the way we treat and view sex and marriage. We talked about the way the gospel informs how we view money and possessions. Very practical things There's nothing new under the sun. Sex and marriage, money and possessions, things that the the church has battled to understand and and grasp how we're to live with respect to these things in light of the gospel. This morning, we'll continue to see what it is to respond to God's grace with a life that glorifies him. Beginning in verse seven, the author of Hebrews says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The the word remember there in verse seven leads most scholars to conclude that in its original context, the author of Hebrews is talking about leaders in the church who have since gone on to be with the Lord. Those whose proclamation of the gospel actually established the very foundation of this battle-inflicted church a couple thousand years ago. Those pioneers, those core group members who helped to plant this church. 
But, but there's certainly a broader application here, I think. Going back to Hebrews chapter 11, all of the saints who have gone before us, that hall of faith passage. There, there's something about remembering those who fix their eyes on Jesus all the way up until their final breath that has a way of, of I would say, putting steel in the spine of our faith and strengthening us in the face of whatever comes our way in life. And so I think a very practical question to ask this morning is, who are those people in your life? Who are those people who have gone on to be with Jesus, who give hope that persevering by faith into the arms of the Savior is actually possible? Who are those people for you? One of the, one of the easiest ministerial, pastoral tasks that I've ever had to take on was the preaching of the very first funeral that I preached, which may sound like a strange thing to say. Um, my, my grandfather on my mother's side, my papa, as we called him, uh, that, that was one of the, the easiest things that I've ever had to do because my papa was a man of great faith. And so it was very easy to stand up before friends and family members. And yes, there was a grieving of the loss, but, but it wasn't a grieving absent of hope. It was, it was very easy to grieve with hope and to say things like, uh, my, my, we, we don't come together and have hope today because of the, the righteousness that, that my papa brought to the table, but rather because by faith he trusted it in a righteousness not his own, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And yes, we saw the outworkings of the gospel in his life, but ultimately this was a man who understood that he could not earn it with God. He understood that he deeply needed the person and work of Jesus Christ to have any hope. And, and so to stand before those people and to declare that was an easy task for me. I, I wanna imitate my papa's faith and not because I think it'll earn anything with God. Jesus has already earned it for me. I understand that. I simply want to leave a Christ-exalting salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone legacy for others. I want my, my, my life and my faith to be leveraged by God to help others persevere into the arms of Jesus Christ. And so let me just ask this morning, what about you? Do you wanna leave that kind of legacy behind? I think it's fascinating that the author of Hebrews closes out with verses like this. He, he's, he's leaving us with the question of legacy to wrestle with. Is that what we want? And secondly, how do you do that? How, how does one leave behind a gospel legacy? How do you leave behind the kind of legacy that causes other people in the wake of your life to persevere into the arms of Jesus, to make it to the finish line by God's grace? How do you do that? How do you leave that kind of legacy behind? And the answer is almost too simple to believe. You Probably when you hear that kind of question, you go, give me the 12-point sermon on how to leave behind that kind of legacy. And here's the reality. The author of Hebrews has been setting us up for failure all along if that's what we're looking for. Because the answer is this, how do you leave behind a gospel legacy? Answer, by continuing to fix your eyes on Jesus. It's what he's been calling us to for 13 chapters now. It's not, not only a life of faithfulness, but faith. Seeing and savoring Jesus in the everyday rhythms of life. Centering our lives, you might say, on the one and same gospel that established the very church to whom this letter was written to 2,000 years ago. Which is why verse eight would go on to say, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And that, that means a few things for us. One, that means that we don't worship and serve a chameleon-like God whose character and attributes might be different tomorrow. Isn't that good news? 
The same God of yesterday is the same God of today, and he will be the same God of tomorrow. That's one thing we can celebrate about verse 8. Another thing we can celebrate is that means the same gospel then, 2,000 years ago, is the same gospel now. You don't have to wake up tomorrow and wonder if the good news is going to have changed. That's incredibly encouraging. It's also encouraging to know that 2,000 years later, the same glorious gospel of Jesus Christ lives on. The church has not been extinguished. We continue to gather and celebrate under the banner of the same good news of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. As the author of Hebrews is going to go on to say in verse 9, all other so-called gospels are nothing more than diverse and strange teachings. But there's also another beautiful and comforting truth tied into verse 8. Coming back to the the example of of my grandfather, He, he wasn't a perfect man. Not only that, he wasn't capable of withstanding death. But where he fails, Jesus most certainly does not fail. Jesus is perfect. He's the only one we can truly put on a pedestal. And he's not going anywhere. I can't sit down with my papa today and talk about what it is to live a life of faith. He's gone on to be with the Lord. But here's the good news that the author of Hebrews has been arguing all along. Our exalted high priest of heaven is always available to meet with us. And to meet us with his grace. Verse 9. He says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. In the context of his original audience. The author of Hebrews is talking about those who are being pressured to return to Jewish food laws. He's saying that's not what strengthens your heart. The grace that Jesus gives is what strengthens your heart. That one way you could... Look at verse 9 is to say a legalistic heart is not a strong heart. A heart saturated with the gospel of grace is a strong heart. Kent Hughes says this in his commentary. He says, those who imagined that spiritual growth came through a special menu had not only become ignorant of the necessity of grace for growth, but they actually blocked strengthening grace by their proud little rules. To be crystal clear, This is not a call to abandon holiness, verse 9. If it were, the commands of chapter 13 would be meaningless. There would be no chapter 13. Again, holiness is not an enemy of the gospel. It's an outworking of the gospel. But this is a call to reject any other so-called gospels. It's a call to abandon self-salvation projects, you might say. It's a call to rest in the righteousness that's yours and mine in Jesus Christ. It's a call to refuse to trust in anyone or anything other than Jesus for a sense of worth, for a sense of value, for a sense of identity. Jesus didn't come 90% of the way in saving us only only to leave the 10% remaining up to us. He didn't, you, you could say it this way, Jesus didn't just do the heavy lifting, he did all of the lifting. He lived the life that you and I could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die in our place. He conquered our great enemies of Satan, sin, and death through his triumphant resurrection, which we'll celebrate a week from now, such that to add to his work is to undeniably belittle it. I've given this illustration before. It'd be like if somebody gave you a signed Mickey Mantle baseball and you pulled out a black Sharpie and just traced over it with your own writings. the, The minute you do that, what have you done to that ball? You've you've devalued it completely, right? The same is true of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot add to his signature. Jesus signed the check for our ransom with his blood. 
There is no other gospel than that of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. That's what the author of Hebrews has been arguing for chapters now. And that gospel, as we continue to soak in it and meditate on it, has a way of strengthening us. As as he moves into verse 10, he, he continues to do what he's done throughout this book, which is to present us with another contrast between the shadows of the Old Testament and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He says this in verse 10. He says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. What he's, what he's getting after there, in the Old Testament, uh, the priests would offer sacrifices, and in most cases, they would get to eat some of the animal after the sacrifice was completed. But they were never allowed to eat from the sin offering on the Day of Atonement, that one day of the year where the high priest would enter into the most holy place and offer sacrifices on behalf of himself and the people. That offering was to be burned outside the camp. What the author of Hebrews here is saying is just like those Old Testament priests with the sin offering, those who hold on to the shadows of the, of the old covenant have no share in the sacrifice of Jesus. They, they do not have a place at the table, you might say. Verse 12, he says, so Jesus... He's connecting the dots to the fulfillment of those shadows. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That Jesus was led outside of the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha, the hill where he would die because he was seen as unclean. And yet it was his very shed blood that made us clean. To use the language of verse 11, his blood has brought us into the holy places that the veil of the, the, the temple has been torn. We share in his sacrifice. Jesus, the better sacrifice of atonement, opens the door for this great feast. And all of a sudden you start to get these images in the scriptures of things like the partaking of the Lord's Supper. As we come together, and we'll do this just a few moments from now, as we take the bread and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and the cup, his shed blood, we participate in this proclamation of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. It's a proclamation of the gospel, this feast that we've been invited into. But not only the Lord's Supper, there's also this picture of the last days, the the. The the new heaven and earth, Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, this picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which you can read about in Revelation 19, where we will all be gathered at the table with Jesus to to this eternal feast that we will have been drawn into with, with Jesus as the centerpiece of it all. But, going back to verse 11, that feast is not for those who embrace any other so called gospel. That feast is not even for those who cling to the shadows of the old. Testament, the old covenant. That feast is for those who trust in the one who became the fulfillment of all of those shadows, the one who suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify us through his own blood, the one who is the fulfillment of every one of those Old Testament sacrifices that took place on the day of atonement, going back to verses 10 and 11. It was all pointing to Jesus, all of it. And so he says in verse 13, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured, that Jesus endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Again, he's talking about Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem. For for the original audience, it's this call to leave the shadows behind for good. To say once and for all, I will not trust in the, the Old Testament institutions, offices, 
sacrificial system, but rather in the fulfillment of all of that in Jesus Christ. And more broadly speaking, it's a call for us to so identify with Jesus that we're willing to bear the reproach that he bore. That we're willing to be shamed and disgraced by those who believe that our gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone is foolish. That we would be willing to bear the reproach for those who find that gospel to be foolish. It's a call to step out and take risks for the glory of God, to be willing to suffer loss for his sake, whatever that might look like in our context. Believing by faith that that all of the promises associated with Mount Zion, the heavenly city of God, are ours. They've already been secured. I find it fascinating that that word seek in, in verse 14 is a present tense verb which means that it's a continual fixing of our eyes on the heavenly city to come. There's there's never a time in which we stop fixing our eyes on the finish line, on Jesus and his eternal kingdom. That if you've ever heard that phrase, uh, that that you could possibly be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, that's dumb and unbiblical. It's just not true. That you're actually, the more we fix our eyes on what is to come, the promises that, that are ours, the eternal security that is ours in Christ and all of the, the, the beauties of, of the new Jerusalem and, and ultimately Christ himself is the centerpiece of that great city. As we allow that vision to, to drive us, we actually persevere um, more fully toward the finish line. That we're, we're called to fix our eyes on everything that is going to come when Jesus returns to make everything sad, untrue. He goes on to say in verse 15, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God that we cannot bring an acceptable sacrifice to God apart from Jesus. It's through him, to use the language of verse 15. It's through Jesus' sacrifice for sin that we can offer God a sacrifice of praise. That Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin. And, and that means that you and I can't offer sacrifices for our sin. Right? We, I think a lot of us know that, but I don't think we necessarily live in that. In, in the day in and day out. Is it not true that, I know I'm a part of this camp, that, that there are times that, that I find myself thinking, man, if I just if I spent a little bit more time in the scriptures, maybe God would love me a little more. Or maybe if I didn't uh, fall into the temptation of this struggle or this sin or this issue with doubt or unbelief, maybe God would, uh, would view me as a little bit more of an acceptable son. You ever wrestle with those things? What, what verses 15 and 16 are saying is that There is no sacrifice for sin available for you to make because Jesus made it a couple thousand years ago on a Roman splintered wooden cross for you. There's nothing to add to it. Again, to go back to that illustration of of the sign baseball, you can't add to the work of Jesus Christ. And so that's meant to actually cause us to rest in his finished work. When he said it is finished, he meant it. And what that means is that the only thing we can bring to the table is not a sacrifice for sin, but a sacrifice of praise. Very simply put, that the author of Hebrews is saying, in light of what Jesus has accomplished for us, praise him. Praise him. Never cease to make much of the name of Jesus. Sing continually of his goodness, glory, and grace. That's your part to play in this in response to who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. 
And, and does not the author of Hebrews put his money where his mouth is? The entire book from start to finish. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Just over and over again to the point that you're like, can we stop talking about Jesus and get on to the what we're supposed to do with our lives? And he's like, no, Jesus, more of Jesus, more of Jesus. And he goes on to say, because this is a, an outworking of the gospel, let your life match your words. Be generous with what you have, using it for good. He's pointing us back to some of the things that he mentioned earlier in this chapter, brotherly love, hospitality, empathy, and care. He's saying don't just talk about Jesus, but live a life informed by what he's done for you. Put saving grace on display by honoring him with your very life. He goes on in verse 17 to say, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are giving watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That pastor elders will, will give an account for the sheep under their watch. That, that's incredibly sobering to me, just so you know. Pastoral ministry is the call to soul watching. This verse I mentioned this back in the series on the church that we did back in January during that time of Q&A one week. I mentioned that this verse provides an incredibly compelling argument for church membership. That biblical eldership can't functionally work without a people saying that they trust a leader or leaders to lead them. That without some sort of, of formalized process to it all, that it's impossible for leaders to lead well. Without... Some sort of formalization, the words submit and lead in a verse like this become really difficult to take seriously. Kent Hughes says this, again, to quote him in his commentary. He says, leadership is difficult in the modern church because the ever-present radio has inbred in some an implicit disregard for local pulpits. The disregard has been further fed by a worldly business mentality that regards bigger as worthy of more respect. Mix in the anti-authoritarian strain of American individualism and subjectivism, and it all adds up to a leadership crisis for the modern church and an entire generation of beat-up clergy. No wonder, he says, that in so many places the church is awash, drifting aimlessly and at the mercy of the hostile seas of neo-pagan culture. And here's, here's the reality. The author of Hebrews is, is not talking about some Jim Jones, drink the Kool-Aid sort of authoritarianism. That's not what he's getting after. He's saying that God in the local church has established Jesus-loving pastor elders to provide for the good of the church, for the good of the flock. And those pastor elders are not absent of accountability. So if you struggle with that, if, if you're like, man, I, I just account, you know, the, like, Coming under and submitting to authority, I have a hard time with that one. Just know that pastors have to do the same thing with God. That they will have to bring their soul watching before the Lord, myself not excluded, to give an account for whether or not they pointed the sheep to the chief shepherd, Jesus, ultimately. The author of Hebrews is saying, if your leaders are pointing you to Jesus for the good of your soul, encourage them. Help to make their, their proverbial sweat, blood, and tears a joyful endeavor. And so let me just, let me make it really easy for you. Here's a way you can, you can uh, fill me with great joy. Uh, it's, it's by saying things like what, what we heard in that five-year celebration video, and not saying them in, in empty fashion, but because they're actually true of what's happening in your life. It fills me with great joy to hear that, that you're more and more seeing Jesus as the hero of all of Scripture. It, it fills me with great joy to hear that the centrality of the gospel is taking deeper root 
in your life. It fills me with great joy to hear that, that you are more than before viewing the church as a family and a means of God's grace to you and to others. That, that's what spurs me on to keep doing this thing. He goes on in verse 18 to say, pray for us, for sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. That The author of Hebrews sees the significance of prayer and not just prayer in general, but prayer for leaders of the church. Again, let, let me just make this very personal. As a pastor, elder, I, I can say without hesitation that I need your prayers desperately. I, I cannot begin to communicate the significance of the prayers of the saints in the lives of church leaders. Every week, and you're invited to this, this is a standing open invitation. Every week here at 9.35, we gather in that room on the other side of that, that soundboard to pray for what's about to take place in this room. And so every week you're prayed for, that God would move in your heart, in your life, that he would awaken you to the beauty of his, his grace in Christ, all that's yours, all the promises that are yours in him, um, that, that God would move and stir you to, to deeper-rooted sanctification as you move in perseverance toward the finish line. We pray for all that stuff, but one of the most significant pieces of that time for me is just to sit and be prayed over. It, it's, I cannot tell you how critical that is to what God does in this place week in and week out. I, I come in very feeble when, when I walk into this place uh, first thing in the morning, and, and I need that time to, to be prayed over, to be lifted up, to, to hear people praying that God's spirit would move and work to even give me a feeling sense of the things that I preach in my own life, and, and, and on and on I could go about the things that are lifted up on my behalf to the Lord, and it is significant, and it has significant impact on what God does in this space and as we leave this space. I could say it this way. A church that prays for her leaders is a force to be reckoned with. I really do believe that. It goes back to the series on the church where I mentioned one of my failures was not, uh, not putting prayer in as a pillar of the church. And, and I really wanna emphasize that to go back to that series and say, no, no, prayer is, is significant. It might be the greatest pillar of all. Verse 20. This will be how we close this service this morning with these very words. It's a benediction. The author of Hebrews says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is What a worship-invoking benediction. Right, look at all, all that's infused in, in this, theologically speaking. He's saying, because of what Jesus has accomplished, God's disposition toward us is one of peace. Let not your heart be troubled. God is established with you through the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus is our death-conquering rescuer whose blood establishes an eternal covenant. That here, Here's good news. There's no newer covenant that will one day replace the covenant established in Jesus' blood. Jesus' new covenant will never be a shadow of something greater that will be its fulfillment. The new covenant is the eternal covenant. He says, Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. He not only gives us life, but he guides us. He tends to us and, and meets our needs and cares for us. And lastly, and this might be the most encouraging of all, he says, through Jesus, God will equip us with everything we need to do his will and bring him glory. That word equip this is fascinating to me. 
That word equip can also be translated as mend. It's the same word in the gospel accounts used to describe the disciples mending their fishing nets. It also carries with it the picture of a, of a fractured bone being set right. So it, it's essentially a repairing that which is broken. That if there is no mending, a, a broken net loses its functionality. You're not going to catch any fish if you have a giant hole in your net, right? If there is no mending, a fractured bone loses its use. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that God will even mend what is broken in you in order that you might bring him glory. That, that he can and will put you back together in your moments of greatest brokenness so that you might do his will. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that encouraging? He says in verse 22, if I was writing the book of Hebrews, I would have quit at verse 21. I'm like, why, why do we need the kind of this letterly language of sort of closing remarks? Just to end in verse 21 would be so sweet. But, but there's more. There's more. He actually ends it perfectly. He says in verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Seriously? If you've been around for this series, your head should be spinning right now by everything that you've encountered over the course of 13 chapters, and he calls it a brief word. And not, not simply a word of teaching. If we walk away with nothing more than some better theological grid, we've missed it. This is a word of exhortation. It's a call to persevering in the faith, to take that theological understanding and wield it like a weapon in the battle against sin and unbelief. He goes on to say in verse 23, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Again, not to be taken lightly, he assumes that they're not going back to the shadows of the old covenant. This is encouraging language for this original audience. He assumes that they will remain under the care of their leaders. He assumes that they will remain in the race with the saints. He assumes that they're truly of the faith. And then he closes with what we might consider to be too simplistic of words, and yet so incredibly comforting and encouraging. Verse 25, he says, grace be with all of you. Would you expect the author of Hebrews to close his letter with anything else? His entire letter has been about the grace of God, the grace established in the new covenant by way of the shed blood of Jesus, that we've been saved by grace and we will persevere into the arms of Jesus by grace. That this book of the Bible is the grace of God to us, as are the other 65. What an incredibly beautiful book that helps us to see how Jesus is truly the hero of the entire story. The question, perhaps for some of us in this room, is this, is he your hero? This Jesus that the author of Hebrews has put on display for 13 glorious chapters. Is he your savior? Is he your king? If not, come to him now. You have nothing to offer for your sin. Christ has offered it all. You bring nothing to the table but your sin in the empty hands of faith. And I invite you to bring those to the foot of the cross and drink from the well of God's grace for the very first time. And if you are a Christian, I can think of no better way to close this series than to say what the author of of Hebrews has been saying for 13 chapters, which is keep looking at Jesus. Consider Jesus. In, in God's timeliness, there, there were some personal bookends put on this series for even our family. I mentioned one of the very first illustrations, and I carried it throughout the course of part one of this series and brought it back on a number of occasions, was, was the illustration of my daughter on the beach. If you weren't around back in the fall, back in September, 
we, we were walking on the beach and my daughter looked up, saw the moon for the first time in her life, not on a screen, not in a book, the real moon, the, the cosmological stage lighting for this divine drama that we've been brought into, and she lost her mind. She just began to bask in it. Daddy, the moon, do you see it, Daddy? It's the moon, it's the moon. Yeah, baby, I see it, it's awesome. It's, it's bigger than you think. And, and we had our moment, and then the next night she did the same thing, and the next night she did the same thing. What, what had become commonplace for me wasn't commonplace for her. She was still caught up in the glory of it all. She's been doing it ever since. When, when we leave our community group, which is the one night of the week that they're up late enough to see the moon, every single week as we're walking to the car, moon, the moon, daddy, it's there, do you see it? It's a crescent moon, it's a full moon. Like she's, she's learned the different forms of the moon that exist in the sky since then. And in God's grace, this past week, we went back to that same beach for a spring family vacation, and I wondered. I wondered what would happen. I didn't want to impose it on her, though I thought it would be really helpful for the sermon series. But we, we went out. The weather was terrible. But the next to the last night, we finally got to go out in the evening and walk that same beach. And within a matter of seconds, all of a sudden, it's the moon, Daddy. You see it? It's there. It's a crescent moon. She lost her mind just like she's done over and over and over again over the course of the last several months of her life. It's never gotten old for her. Welcome to the Christian life. A life in which we never stop declaring to one another as well as our own hearts. Look at Jesus. Isn't he glorious? He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the pre-existent creator of all things. He's the one who upholds the universe by the power of his word. He's God's final revelation. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than fallen man. He's greater than Moses. He's your perfect high priest. He's your once and for all sacrifice. He's your death conquering shepherd whose blood has established an eternal covenant. Never stop seeing and savoring him he's worth it in a moment we're going to continue to worship in a number of ways we are going to participate in a feast if you're a christian communion is for you we do take the bread here dip it in the cup the bread representing the broken body of jesus the cup representing his shed blood the tables will be open throughout the remainder of this service so come when you're ready but prior to coming I would just encourage you to stop and, and even just sit with verses 20 and, and 21 and soak in, in all that is yours in Jesus Christ. Soak in the beautiful reality that when he said, he said it is finished he meant it. You, you, you're free. You don't have to bring anything to the table in terms of your own penance or atonement. Jesus has done it for you. Soak in that and then come in celebratory fashion and receive of the elements. We'll also continue to worship through singing. There'll be people in the back of the room to pray with you, for you, if you want prayer. I would encourage you to take advantage of that. My prayer for us as we close out this series is, is that we would more and more be a people so enamored with the person and work of Jesus Christ that, that we would look a little foolish like my daughter out on that beach that people would look at us and go, really, you're still infatuated? And we'd go, yeah, how can you not be?